0: Welcome to the 343rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today I welcome Susan Skutta, founder of the group Young and Severely Affected by COVID. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I just want to take a moment here to acknowledge, once again, the incredibly hard work of Shivani Patel, Bucky Stanton, Kiona Kume, and Eleanor Mays, who are working on the daily production of COVID calls, the scheduling of future COVID calls, scheduling all the way through the end of the year at this time and probably beyond, and who are working night and day on the creation of the website for COVID calls in which all of the calls will reside in audio video transcript and much much more there so stay tuned for that uh, announcement about a launch date will be coming soon thank you as of today, September 16th, 2021, there are 4,660,309 deaths from COVID-19 globally, that's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic and I'd like to continue that now. These are two obituaries which were featured on the facebook group young and severely affected by covid leslie ann ibarra appeared in the tribute archive september 5th 2021 leslie booms ibarra passed away saturday september 11th 2021 at the age of 31. she was born in corpus christi texas on september 24th 1989. After finishing school, she pursued a career in the medical field, obtaining a degree as a medical assistant. She succeeded in all aspects of her job. She held a 10-year career in the medical field at the Children's Center of Corpus Christi. It was her whole life. She loved her job so much and was an asset to the company. Nobody can fill her shoes or live up to her expectations. Her personality was just as daring as her hobbies. She loved cars, racing, motorcycles being with family, and helping others. Leslie is survived by her husband, Angel Amus Ibarra, and her daughter, Rogue Sky Ibarra. She will be dearly missed by all her family and friends. She was a beautiful soul, and a celebration of her life will keep our hearts and faith forever strong. Gabriella Abigail Hitchcock. This appeared as a GoFundMe post on September 5th, 2021. On May 14th, 2013, the world was graced with the beautiful presence of a seven-pound baby girl named Gabriella Abigail Hitchcock. Over the course of the next eight years, she will have taught so many about life and love, fighting and laughing, to be humble and to have fun. While she was diagnosed with Rett syndrome early in life, she did not let that control her positive outlook. The giggles she would explode with would make the room stop and join in. Her love for Baby First overruled any sporting event her dad wanted to watch. If tech was on, everything else stopped, and that meant anywhere she was. While Gabby was nonverbal, she showed expression through her beautiful eyes. You knew immediately if she was uncomfortable or unhappy about something, but also that she loved what was going on and what she was surrounded by. She was the daddy's girl and had her mama wrapped around her finger. On September 4th, 2021, Gabby took her last breath here on Earth. She has joined her Aunt Jenny in heaven. While this world will never be the same, heaven has no idea what it's in for. Hug your babies a little tighter tonight. Say a prayer for Gabby's mom and dad as they navigate the next chapter of their journey. God bless you, Gabby girl. We love you. Obituary of Gabriella Abigail Hitchcock. From GoFundMe. And before that, we heard the obituary from the tribute archive of Leslie Ann Ibarra. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Susan Scutta. Susan Scutta was a cytotechnologist and college instructor before becoming a stay-at-home mom. When her children became independent, she qualified as registered nurse from El Centro Community College in Dallas, Texas, and then obtained her bachelor's degree in nursing from the University of Texas at Arlington. Her nursing career started in mental and psychiatric nursing. Later, she transitioned to medical nursing. Early on in her nursing career, it became evident that providing reliable information and educating patients in language that they could understand was an important part of relieving the anxiety and feelings of disempowerment many experience while hospitalized. Her ultimate goals when working with patients are to reinforce hope and a sense of autonomy and to promote compliance. She is currently working as a RN Case Manager in Utilization Review. Susan Scudder, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today.
1: Hi, Scott, thank you for having me.
0: So I just want to stipulate at the beginning, Susan, you're the founder of Young and Severely Affected by COVID, but that doesn't reflect in any way on your employment.
1: And that is correct, Scott. Um, This is a a personal and private project that I've undertaken um, starting, I believe, in May of 2020. And um, although I work at the Evergreen Health System in the Seattle, Washington area, um none nothing that i am say here relates to my work i'm not representing my employer and i have never shared any information about my employer or patients or co-workers and never intend to do so
0: okay well i'm glad that we were able to make that extremely clear and i also want to remind listeners that you're the founder of young and severely affected by COVID, which many of us have been following along for quite some time now and and we were chatting just a bit before. I think it's along with the work that Alex Goldstein has done with Faces of COVID and um, many, many others who've been um, trying to highlight the human impact face by face, name by name, story by story of COVID. Um, I just want to say at the outset, you've done a tremendous service uh, in, in this pandemic. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to talk about it in great detail. But just to start, in that way and and if i could i would just like to ask you where you're where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today
1: Hi, and scott yeah and thank you for that expression of gratitude and um, that really mean, means a lot to me um i am currently calling from outside of seattle washington um in the pacific northwest
0: how are things there right now in terms of pandemic
1: you know, um, at the moment, I believe we are dealing with, many hospitals in this area are dealing with the highest numbers of COVID cases since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and it is complicated by the fact that we sit right next to Idaho, um, which is one of the states with, the, uh, you know, the lowest vaccination rates. So um not only are we dealing with local COVID patients, but we are also getting patients being flown in driven in from across state lines. So hospitals are full to capacity, ICUs are still struggling with a lot of COVID patients. Um yes, so it's still pretty intense here.
0: So you're in eastern Washington then?
1: Yes, uh, no, not, but the, but in Western Washington, so, yes. You're Western Washington or... is so right on the coast.
0: Okay, so, um, sorry, I, I was thinking about the, what you're pointing out about Idaho. So, you're actually seeing an Idaho impact all the way across the state of Washington. It does. Wow. Okay. It does. Um, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory from this COVID period, something that really sort of crystallizes what it's been like to live through COVID for you.
1: Um, probably the very beginning where we all were, um, you know, very nervous. And the first uh, case in the United States that was diagnosed with COVID was in Washington state. And I believe that was in January of 2020. And um, so we were there was like a, a communal anxiety that you know, it, it was in the air, we, we I think all expected that it's it's going to grow. It's, it's this is not where it starts, and it was indeed soon after that that the first patients started being hospitalized, um, all over the Seattle area, and um, it, we were really worried. So th- there was a, a a communal anxiety. That's the best way that I can describe.
0: And that period, as you said, is one that uh, you experienced before other people in the United States. And it seems like Washington and, and Northern California was the preview for everybody else in the U.S. And, and maybe people weren't paying close enough attention
1: to I what were going through. I think you are right. And um, at Evergreen Health, we were very lucky to have an outstanding epidemiologist, uh, Dr. Francis Rido. And he was very quickly on top of things. Um, and I think it could have been much worse. So there was very prompt action. And um, but still, the you know, the impact was, was felt.
0: That's an important detail to note, too, that people should remember that before there were statewide orders, it was health center by health center, school by school, restaurant by restaurant. I mean, it was really very individual as to what kind of protocols, right? I must, were, you were, ahead of, were you ahead of you of state guidance in the kinds of actions that you all took? Um,
1: I, you know, I don't have the specific information about that. And um, because I'm not representing the, the, health, right. System, right. the clean health system, I don't want to talk about that. Um, so possibly, but right. I don't have that information.
0: So... I wonder if um, you wouldn't mind talking a little though about your background in in nursing and um, curious to, you know, particularly what you're seeing now, I know you probably have never, nobody that's alive today has seen a pandemic like this, but how prepared were you in your training or in your background for the kinds of things that you've seen and, and how are nurses coping overall in your estimation?
1: I think none of us were prepared for this. Um, all hospitals in the U.S. have emergency plans, and it's you know they uh, draw those plans and it's in place and it's there. But I, I don't think any any nurses were ready for this. It, it was unexpected. It was unlike anything we have ever dealt with. Um, so I certainly wasn't prepared. Um, I wasn't completely surprised that it happened um, after SARS Um, and when we we had a preview that this might happen again. It's kind of overdue um, just based on the the history of when pandemics happen. Um, So I think the majority of us were not prepared that it's going to happen in our lifetime.
0: How do you think that your colleagues are are doing either, you know, in your profession, the things you read, or even people, you know, it's been a long time now, we hear a lot about fatigue and, and burnout, um, and people leaving the profession. Maybe we, that's, you know, been a focus of course, of, of reporting, because it seems pretty intuitive to us. But I wonder from your perspective, how are nurses doing?
1: They struggling. They are struggling um, and especially the ones right on the front line, um, not all nurses do the same job. So the, the people in the ICUs, the people on the COVID units, the people in the EDs, and it's not just the nurses, you know, it's the whole team, the, the physicians, the respiratory therapists, um, speech pathologists, they are all struggling. And I think what really complicates us is when the vaccine became available, um, and initially, here in Washington State, it became available to healthcare workers um, at the end of December of 2020. And we knew that it is going to roll out and the general public would have that same access. And there was such a sense of hope. You know, uh, we all thought this is the beginning of the end. Um, th- there was hope. Um, and people just knew they, or, or thought that they had to you know, work through this this last bit, we're going to get there. And of course then it didn't happen. And because of the resistance to uh, getting vaccinated and because of of the Delta strain that has uh, such a high impact than um, previous strains. So um, healthcare workers are tired. Um, some of them, you know, they've lost hope. Um, some of them are angry. And, and it's understandable. There's, there's, there's anger and despair. Um, and as you say, some leave uh, you know, direct patient care because they just cannot deal with it anymore.
0: That anger, I wonder, I mean, we can't characterize it in a single way, but where does that come from? Does it, does it come from just an overall accumulation of feeling that, nurses aren't listened to or or is it more about the vaccination um situation and people not getting vaccinated i mean where is that where's that coming from
1: um i think it's uh it's basically basically um the, the two things that i can think of is firstly the fact that we do have a solution it's the vaccination and yet people still refuse it so um people feel that we shouldn't be in this situation it, it could have been solved and then a, a, a second factor in the anger I believe is fear because um, you know nurses and doctors and other healthcare care workers go home to their families to their young children who are not vaccinated um, they have lived with this stress now since the beginning of the vac- uh, of the pandemic and so the anger i think is partially a reflection of the fear um that it's been a long time and now we have a solution but yet the solution isn't used or isn't used by all
0: just a reminder you're listening to COVID calls and i'm talking to susan Scutter today the founder of young and severely affected by covid 19. so let's turn to that susan um talk about young and severely affected by COVID? What gave you the idea to start this project? What is it?
1: So initially when the pandemic started, um, we saw on the news, um, you know, these reports that young people are not at risk for severe disease. It's only the elderly, it's only people um, who are severely compromised, uh, pre-existing conditions. And, We also saw news reports of people having, young people having big parties, full parties and other gatherings, and um, in my work, like many other healthcare workers, I believe, it soon became evident that although the majority of people who became severely ill or died were elderly, or they did have uh, severe pre-existing conditions, they were many outliers um, people in their 40s and 30s and then we saw them in their 20s who had n- no pre-existing conditions or in some cases they had diabetes which they didn't know they had um, or they were obese um, which we now know is one of the predisposing factors to becoming severely ill from covert um, and so This continuation of flooding the media, and I'm talking about the previous administration, with misinformation, um, misguidance, and reassurance, giving this continuous reassurance, which was false, Um, and it made me very uneasy. And so i started searching there must be somebody working on you know the cases of these young people i just want to share it on facebook and then my friends will share it and you know the the word would spread and i couldn't find any similar project so initially i just started searching for individual cases um and i would share them and there were very few people who cared Um, And I understand it, Um, at that time, everybody was already tired. And I'm talking about probably around May of 2020. People were tired of just hearing about COVID. So um, I decided to put it all together so that people can access it and maybe start putting faces to these younger people who became severely ill or died of COVID. I um, initially started a Facebook page, which I later figure out, figured out is not the, the best format and changed to, to a Facebook page. And it grew very slowly. There, there was not a, a lot of um, response, but I, I felt I needed to continue. And um, what later became evident is that people, the families of some of these people who died, Um, family members who would message me and say thank you for you know memorializing them and and that wasn't even my intention at the beginning but it made me aware of how important it is that you know every one of these individuals um, there's a story and there's a whole starburst of people around them influenced by this loss And um, that's how it started.
0: Well, thank you for for telling us about that. And and there's so much in there. I wanna I wanna talk about the um, first thing is just to to go back to that period of time, April and May of 2020. And Mm -hmm. and thank you for bringing us back to this moment in which it was a really steady flow of. I guess I want to be charitable and say it's misinformation. I I think it, it became disinformation as well about the impact of COVID on young people. And and as you framed it, that it was it was something that was out there, I guess on the one hand, to make sense of the fact that what we were mostly hearing about were people in in long term care elders, older people who were who were getting in and dying, particularly in April. Um, but as you point out, there were plenty of evidence that that was not the only thing. And so it was somehow, I guess if if we're sympathetic about it, it was, it was a story that we heard so that people wouldn't be as concerned for their own health if they were younger or they wouldn't be as concerned for their children. When I'm feeling less charitable, I feel like that was really, um, done in a, in a deceitful way. And I, you know, I don't know of any, evidence that yet has been turned out about, you know, the previous administration's strategy along those lines, but certainly Mm -hmm. by the end of the summer of last year, as we're moving towards a school year, that became strategic strategic communication for the Trump administration that kids have to go back to school and this disease doesn't affect them and if you say otherwise, you're lying. I just Mm -hmm. found that so distressing. You had already been doing the project at that point for several months.
1: Correct. And, um, you know, there, there was a period in 2020 that I went through so much anger about what I was seeing um, because, as you say, it wasn't just misinformation, it was disinformation. And um, what I found ironic is that um, that same mentality was seen initially in Wuhan with the Chinese government, where they tried not that they were not transparent. They were very concerned about social unrest, and they um, didn't want to disturb the economy. So it was downplayed Mm -hmm. until, you know, it mushroomed and it exploded. And so the virus gets to America, and here we see exactly the same thing. Um, Downplay, try to, you know, retain the economic integrity, try to prevent chaos and, you know, people becoming really panicked instead of, of um, informing people this this is bad you know you're dealing with something that's really bad um what i find difficult at this point is that um, although there's still a clear um, indication that those who are against the vaccine they are more uh, um, people who are republicans who are against the vaccine and you know i i don't want to make that the focus (laughs) i i i'm always sort of walking on eggs because i i want to address it that people need to be you know they have to investigate their own uh, their own backgrounds their own belief systems um and see where they come from and and how they have been influenced by their immediate society and by their religious leaders. And I don't want to offend people, but at the same time, I want them to look very closely at how this mindset that's influenced by culture and societal pressures and education and all those things, how it is impacting individual families and, and, you know, kids ending up without parents. Um,
0: it's such a thoughtful approach. And I, I mean, just to, underline the moment we're in as a society that telling the truth about a health impact of a pandemic suddenly becomes a situation where you have to second guess yourself and ask if that's political right that's that's distressing also
1: right it should never have been about politics it should have been about about health um and and yeah that is distressful. and um I think the best way for myself to look at it is when talking to people is to remind them that many politicians, and I mean, this is a broad generalization, but politicians will tell you what you want to hear. Politicians are going to want to make you comfortable and, you know, relax with them. Doctors in their everyday lives are the ones who tell patients, you have to stop drinking or you're going to die. They have to inform you, you have a new diagnosis of cancer. Your prognosis is this. It's not easy stuff, but it's the truth. And and that is what people need to start realizing, is we need to focus on truth, not on feelings.
0: <laughs> the, um, the other thing I, I found really fascinating in what you're describing, and I think I hadn't quite put this together in this way, is... And the challenge of health communication is is real, it's every day, it's before the nice. pandemic and it will go on um, because science is changing and because medical best practices keep up with science. And in the middle of a pandemic, that's been fast moving. So this has often been pointed to um, in anti-vaccination circles um, that, well... The government has changed its mind multiple times about masks, or they've changed their mind. I'm hearing this about booster shots now. Well, the government can't make up its mind about boosters, and so we can't trust right. anything they say. And I have to say, I mean, even back, you know, last year when Trump was promoting the Operation Warp Speed, it cut across politics, at wow. least for a brief period of time in which people say, so I think some who are more on the left, said, well, if Trump is pushing this so fast, I'm not sure I can trust it. Right. So that's problematic. But the part of that is particularly comes back to your work is I worry what's stuck in some people's minds early on is, oh, young people don't get this.
1: Exactly. And, And, you know, I was talking to my husband last night, um, in preparation for this this interview and um we were talking about why was it so hard to get past that point and it basically took the delta variant to start changing people's minds and um, he brought up a very valid point and it is that the initial message is the most powerful people heard that it was good to hear it felt good it was reassuring and it stuck
0: So just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Susan Scutta today, the founder of Young and Severely Affected by COVID. So you mentioned that once you started to get some traction with the project, people started reaching out to you. I'm curious, I don't want you to give away all of your trade secrets, but I am curious how you actually go about doing doing the work. I've talked to Alex Goldstein about this on COVID Calls um, before, and for him, it's a lot of uh, obituary searching. And then at some point, people started to, to contact him. Uh, and now I think that may be the way that he gets a lot of his um, profiles that he puts up on his site. How, how did you go about it?
1: You know, my um, it, initial searches were basically also obituaries, um, news stories, uh news stories, um, Facebook. And um, I still do a lot of their, that. But over time, more and more people have contacted me and sent me more stories, so much so that at the moment, I sit with a backlog of emails and messages that I need to work through. And um, yeah, so that has changed. People have definitely become more involved.
0: When people reach out to you, can you characterize what that communication is like? How do they find you and, and what do they hope to accomplish by reaching out to you, Susan?
1: Um, mostly it is members of, of the Facebook group who become aware of cases in their own communities and then they will share it. Um, there are a few cases where family members will, will contact me and ask to share it. So yeah, those are the two main ways.
0: And the terminology I, I find really um, interesting, severely affected. so. You focus on death, certainly, but do you also focus on sufferers and long COVID? I mean, what what falls into that category for you?
1: Right. Um, uh, Initially, my um, thoughts were to point out that there are quite a lot of people who, you know, they uh, develop blood clots, they end up having strokes and their lives are changed forever. And many of these stories don't reach the news media, you know, it's. It's just out there. So I haven't focused a lot of on just long-term COVID. Um, but some of the cases that I want to share one specific case with you, which is uh, you. just so tragic. Um, this young boy, his name is Deshaun uh, Jameson. I don't know if you've heard of him. 10-year-old boy from um, Michigan. So Deshaun became severely ill with MIS, the multi-system um, inflammatory syndrome in children, which develops after COVID, um, and it is a rare condition, but it happens. It happens, and when it happens, it can be severe. So Deshaun ended up uh, ended up having both of his hands were amputated, both of his legs were amputated. Um, <laughs> And that's severely affected. <laughs> so, you know, people have to know, it's not, sometimes death is a blessing. You know, death could be easier for some people than continuing to love with with what they have. And I'm not inferring that that's the case of Deshaun, but many people uh, end up being so severely disabled that it's not only death we need to be worried about. We need to be worried about long-term effects as well.
0: Oh, You shared uh, Deshaun's case. Uh, there must be others along the way that have really brought you up short uh, or help us understand different dimensions of the, of the tragedy. Could you share some of
1: those with us? Right. Um, I think the, the one that I want to share first is that of Martin Addison. You might be familiar with Martin Addison's case. Um, He was a 44-year-old speech pathologist um, and he became ill and soon after died of COVID-19 in, um, I believe it was in April of 2020. So speech pathologists are, they are in people's faces. That is as close as you can get to a patient. (laughs) And to me, Martin represents... All the healthcare workers who we have lost, um, in those early days and now it still continues. Um, and Martin's, uh, uh, widow, Pamela Addison has gone on. She is an advocate for COVID victims, widows and their children. So yes, Martin's case will always stand out to me. And um, another one is, um, Rawlinson Chicas. Um, Rawlinson Chicas was a young man, I believe 35 years old, and our, our lives briefly intersected while I worked in mental health care in, in Dallas. Um, Rawlinson had recovered from addiction and he had become an advocate for treatment and, um, he would come to the hospital where I worked. Um, he was a mentor for these patients who were on the, the, the path that he had been. And what was so incredible about him is he was this bulky guy, and blackened. you blackened. Know, he had um, a lot of you know, long hair. and He looked like a biker, but like a kind biker. <laughs> and um, what was so... interesting to me oftentimes i would you know just sort of observe his interaction with some of these patients and what was incredible is that you could see hope in their eyes when he worked with them, when he talked with them and that is something you don't often see in a in a psychiatric psychiatric hospital you know and he inspired me um and so part of his job was that when patients were ready to be discharged to their next destination, whether it's a halfway house or, you know, I don't know, um, he would be the one to transport them and he would remain in contact with them. So, I believe Rawlinson affected a lot of people in the, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth area. And um, I was, when I saw, He's GoFundMe page. Um, this, you know, it was like a gut punch. And I thought, I hope I'm wrong. I just hope I'm wrong. And I wasn't wrong. And um, so, you know, and he's one of those unsung heroes. He was a drug addict, but he, he did so much. He turned that around and he touched so many people's lives. And he's gone. You know, he's, he's gone. And um, he was also father of a, a, a young daughter. So, yes, that is a case that will forever stay. with me.
0: When you talk about these these stories, of course, we're not talking only about individuals. We're talking about families. That would be true, uh, of course, of, of COVID victims of any, any age. Right. And so I don't want to. I don't want to um say any death is more tragic than any other
1: absolutely
0: but, not but when we're talking about maybe younger covid sufferers there will be a direct impact on a parent or on on a child and that's in the, you know we've talked a lot on covid calls about the impact of this pandemic on on children who are severely affected not in their own health but by the loss of a parent so we have some tens of thousands now of children in America who are now have lost a parent or primary caregiver or have lost both parents. Correct. We're seeing that more and more. That's another dimension of being severely affected, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. And, you know, at one point I wanted to, in this project, get more, dig deeper into that because in the end, the children are the ones that I think touch all of us and who who are most severely affected. by um losing parents suddenly their whole life has changed um and that is why part of my decision and when i started the project i had to decide but what is young Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know in in where do you cut off when are you not young anymore and i'm definitely not implying that at 51 you suddenly not young anymore but i'm I'm glad to
0: hear that i'm really (laughs) glad to hear that (laughs) <laughs> I was wondering if you're going to put a number on the board and I'm wondering how I'm to, where I'm going to fit in there, but okay, good, good.
1: <laughs> so, you know, in the end, I uh, made the decision that I, I, I need to make some kind of cut And I realized that there are many people in their forties who still have young children at home who are dependent on them um in your 50s for the majority of people and again it's you know it's just generalization there's many cases that to who this doesn't apply but it, um in the age group of four, uh, 15 upwards there's fewer people far fewer people with one uh, young children dependent on them and so um that was part of you know that was my biggest drive be- behind I make the path of fifty because I have to make it somewhere. Is the so, fact that these these children, the children that remain.
0: You mentioned that people started uh, reaching out to you, and now you have a, uh, a more work than you can manage in terms of, you know, the the, the work you're doing with young and severely affected by COVID. Um, and I hope you can catch up. You know, I mean, the, the pace that we're on is a, is a brutal pace and doesn't seem to be relenting any right. anytime soon. I see that as really great, you know, and positive reception to the work that you're doing. If it's the families themselves that are reaching out to you, but we also live in complicated times. Have you received right. criticism as well?
1: Oh, I have. I, I have received criticisms, uh, criticism and I've received traits um, which are unpleasant. Um but few. It's luckily not a you know. It's not a common occurrence. Um, but I have received criticism, um, and I soon realized you know this is going to be. I either need to stop the project completely, or I need to learn how to cope with it. So that's what I've been doing.
0: What's your coping mechanism for something like that?
1: Um, I respond to the people respectfully like I would with any other person. and um, I usually uh, apologize if I have offended them. If it is you know a case where a family member has died, I will offer my condolences and I mean it sincerely. you know it, it, it comes from my heart. Um, and then I would move on.
0: Mm-hmm. I, it's hard for me to understand why someone would criticize you for shining light on uh, the death of someone, if it's, particularly if it's publicly reported. Uh, can, can you characterize that? Is it just a sort of general lashing out or is it coming more from a, a sort of conspiracy kind of, kind of space? Where, how do we understand that?
1: It's difficult to understand, especially if people have made uh, public GoFundMe pages in which they, you know, characterize it as having been COVID related and where the majority of people, especially before the vaccine, um, people, so it, it is difficult to understand to me. Um, but I think there are a lot of people and it, it may be changing, but, especially, um, I would say, until about two months ago, there were a lot of people who wanted to not acknowledge COVID as the cause of the death of the, their loved one. Um, it was just, yeah, they didn't want to, they didn't want to acknowledge it.
0: So when, when you post it in the context of COVID, it somehow is jarring for people who are just not ready to acknowledge that.
1: Right, right. I think that that is what it is. And and what I find really sad about that is um, those who have lost loved loved ones who have refused the vaccine, that then the family comes out and say, you know, the patient refused or we didn't want it. We so wish we we didn't make that decision. I have the greatest admiration for those people because they are actually um, applying that terribly sad loss to in service of society, you know, they are preventing further loss of life. Um, and to me that is, I, I understand it has been very difficult to do, but I also believe it's the right thing to do, you know, and, and I admire families and individuals who do that.
0: So I just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Susan Scudder today, the founder of Young and severely affected by COVID and Susan, we should give people an opportunity to know where they can find this group is primarily still, um, a Facebook group. That's the, the main way to interact with the content you've pulled together.
1: You know, it's on Facebook and, um, it's actually by the same name on Twitter. Um, so they can find it either on, on, on Twitter or on Facebook.
0: Okay, so if you're looking to get um, to see the, the full collection of what Susan's been doing, go find that. And I think it's at Young and Severely Affected by COVID. Is Twitter.
1: it terrible that I don't even know by now? I just click by link?
0: <laughs> no, it's not terrible at all. It's, it's, it's uh, the reality of how much work you're doing that you're, you're not taking the time to worry about that part of it. Um, and I think if you go looking for it on Facebook, just with that title, Young and Severely Affected by COVID, you will find it there. And I've also linked to it uh, on my Twitter account, so people can certainly find it there as well. If you just go to at US of Disaster, you'll find um, what Susan's been been up to. So, um, just want to stay with this just a little bit longer in terms of the the community around this. And so, you know, it's a Facebook group. It's it's um, functioning as a community, and a, a very special and unique one for these times. What is that community like? What do people get by participating in it? I mean, what what do they What does it do for them and then what do they contribute
1: um you know i believe that the uh, a big driving force behind this is in specific areas where people have low vaccination rates and um, the communities around them are resistant to getting the vaccine people are you know they're trying to find supporting evidence of to, to um, encourage their communities in, and their friends and their family to see show them this is what's happening this is what's happening right here in our little town so i think that is a is a big part of it is that people are trying to find information that's not always readily available um to Being able you know for all of us moving forward in this pandemic
0: i think that's that's a really important detail so so people are finding this and then using it as a way to communicate with people they love to try to show them that they need to get vaccinated
1: right it's it's um i think that is at this stage probably one of the most important um purposes that the group serves
0: I mean, I think that's really important because if people are keeping up with the news or even if if they're only haphazardly keeping up with the news, um, this population group up until very recently has not been featured. And and if they're following the news closely, like if they're reading obituaries of COVID deaths, which I don't think most people do, you and I might be unique in that regard, they're one here, one there. They still feel somehow like outliers, but when you begin to read them as a group and bring it together, then you see the many dimensions of it. I think.
1: I think you are absolutely right. Um, uh, this pandemic has, in a, a big part, of the effects and the devastation has been hidden. You know, it's it's hidden in the hospitals in ICUs, it's hidden in homes where people are mourning. Um it's not as if we have a a apocalyptic people dying on the streets (laughs) it might have been a a, a different effect but it's 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 a quiet pandemic is what i want to call it and and that's what makes it so difficult for the information to get out and um that really makes me grateful for people who share the information and you know contribute to it to this project and encourage others to, know to what we
0: all need to do. Do you have some particular, like quite specific goals with this work, Susan? I mean, I know early on your goal, you're very clear. It was to actually just make people conscious of the fact that this can affect people who are not just elderly. But we we kind of know that by now, or we should know that society right. by now. So I'm sort of curious how your goals have changed over time and what you're trying to achieve right now.
1: Right. And I can talk a long time about that, which I I won't do. Um, But at this time, I think that the two most important things to me are that, um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of anger, understandable anger, as we've spoken about before. And I think the backlash that we see by vaccinated people against um, anti-vaxxers is doing much more harm than you know coming from a place of caring and motivating people so and, and i don't know how i'm going to do this i've, I've been trying to and I'll, I'll keep at it and try to figure it out but we need to get to a place um, where we recognize that um <laughs> even though you're saying something on the internet um it hurts just as much. You cannot lash out to a family. Um, even if their son or their daughter was a vocal anti-vaxxer, um, refused to wear a mask, you know, that family is still hurting. And by meanness and, um, aggression, it's, you're not going to change anything. <laughs> um, it, we, and it's okay to express the 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 anger and the fury in a different way, but I, I feel that we need to come to a place where we recognize that these are still our fellow citizens. These are fathers and mothers. Um, would you have said that about that person in 2019? Yeah. No. I mean, we, we and I understand there's some really stupid choices that were made, and it's choices that affect the entire community. But we cannot lose focus of we are dealing with our fellow human beings, um, and in, if in any way we can encourage them, continue to be supportive, and find ways to find common ground. Um, Uh, that's what we need to do so my hope is that we will get to a point where the, the anger can be converted in something more caring um i also hope that and this is the second thing that we can move away from um what the misinformation that politicians bombard us with and reinstall the trust that people used to have in doctors um, the people who know, the people who have trained for this, who are used to telling you the truth, and it's very often a very uncomfortable truth. We need people need to start listening to what their doctors say. <laughs> we need to get back to, and, and it's so basic. I mean, 20 years ago, this statement of, would have been crazy. <laughs> people would have asked what do you mean We do listen to doctors we need to get back to that we need to get back to truth and evidence-based information
0: well um very well stated on the second one and, and on the first point uh about sort of erosion of community i had thought i would have thought if you told me about this project in 2019 that this would have been the evidence of the coming together of people around death, particularly around young people. Right. Uh, And so that has also been an injury. I think that people, certainly family members have experienced it profoundly, I know, but even on, on the outside at a remove, to see the dissolution of societal caring. And it's not everywhere. In fact, it's probably a Pretty small majority of people who'd be willing to lash out at a at a family, or lash out at you, but they're amplified. They amplify themselves. They're very good at that. The media amplifies right. them, right. and it does hurt. And I right. think we that tending to community, what you said there, I think is really profound. I mean, the virus thrives on the fact that humans are social and that we live in right. community. So we may as well acknowledge that the virus is right in that sense, and right. and and tend to that and i I think you've said it very well and i and you've created a unique community here what happens to this community when the pandemic becomes endemic will you keep doing this work
1: i don't know (laughs) i don't know i've been at points where um i've been uh, mentally exhausted where i get to a point where you know i just need to step away just stop but um, I mean, many of my uh, other companions who do similar projects, you don't just step away. Um, you know, initially you start doing it because you have a sense of responsibility um, that you need to do something. And then once you're in it, um, you realize that you cannot just leave it. Um I hope that I'll get to the situation will get to a point where um, I can make it less of a focus of my life. Um, at the moment, I'm basically, I work full time. So I do this before work in the morning. And then after work, I take off about two hours and then I start again. And it, it varies how much time I spend on it. But um, there's been very few days since I started this that I haven't touched it at all. Um, so I hope I can, I don't know, get the, get to a point where I can structure my life better and maybe reprioritize and focus on, as I said, um, we need to move towards, um, encouragement and hope, hope and, you know, a society that cares and promoting that. So long term i don't have an answer for you but i hope it we get to a point where it will be better
0: what are specific policies you'd like to see right now to help speed that along
1: um i am i feel uncertain about answering that um i know there's a, a <laughs> resistance from people about mandated vaccination and again i'm i'm on that in that uneasy position of recognizing this concept of medical autonomy and autonomy in every sense sure um i think it would help if we had you know a, a mandate um what I would really like to see is that within the, the nursing community, that nurses would come out and be more vocal about vaccination. Um, what is being truly unsettling is, uh, uh, um, this is very local in areas that correspond to low vaccination, that you still find nurses and other healthcare workers who are not vaccinated. And um, which I find extremely unsettling, especially because the American Nurses Association are, you know, very clear about their stance on you need to get vaccinated. So um, we are seeing more hospitals and other healthcare facilities that are changing, that are requiring the workers to be vaccinated. I hope that. That becomes more universal, um, and that that healthcare workers re- need to realize that what you care, carry out. I'm you know, not talking of the virus. Your your attitude, what you say on social media, um, there's a responsibility. We need to support yeah. the effort of getting back to to a better life.
0: Well, almost up on time in my conversation today with Susan Scutta. I have one more question, Susan, and this is the question I ask for the historians in, in the crowd, which is how will you be archiving this work? And I know you didn't start this to make a historical project. I mean, you're intervening in, in providing knowledge and hope for people and created a community. Right. But you've also created a quite unique archive of our time. And I wonder what your future plan is for that and, and careful how you answer because there's probably an army of graduate students out there right now who are thinking, wow, this is a project that I could really, I could really work on. <laughs> there will be people out there who will want to preserve every aspect of what you've accomplished here. I, I mean, I count myself among them.
1: Oof. Maybe this shows my ignorance, but I haven't thought about that. I do not know I do not know um, I recognize that it's been it is important work um, but I do not know I don't have an answer for you
0: no I, I don't think that's ignorance at all I think it's it's evidence that you, you're busy doing the work <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. yeah but I, but I think it's and it is archived already I mean at, in in the places wow. where you're putting it up it's archived there on Twitter and it's archived uh in in facebook um it's such a unique record of this of this moment this time that we're going through so um susan just any final things you wanted to say uh you know something we didn't get to that you wanted to mention or anything you wanted to leave our listeners with um i made
1: a note and let me maybe we already spoke about that um yeah uh, I think I already said what I wanted to, to, to say, but um, the big thing that I want to leave with is to keep uh, encouraging people who are still not vaccinated, who have access and who are candidates for the vaccine, to get the vaccine. Um, there's still a lot of people out there for various reasons who say they'll wait and see. Uh, we are way past the, the stage of having that luxury of waiting and seeing. We are we have seen, we have seen. So, um, you know, and this is coming from a a place of kindness, you know, I want people to get vaccinated for themselves and for their families. Um, And again, I want to encourage people to get the information from their doctor. I want women who are pregnant or are planning to become pregnant. We are seeing a lot of young pregnant mothers dying at the moment um, who are unvaccinated. And, you know, (laughs) talk to your gynecologist or your your op-gyne. If if, uh, they say you should not get vaccinated, maybe talk to another specialist, because the evidence is clear. Um, These young mothers are at a severely high risk, of severe adverse effects and um, I mean that is just a a sad situation that needs to be addressed and people need to to know about that and encouraged to be vaccinated.
0: Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays live at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Today I've been talking with Susan Scudder, the founder of Young and Severely Affected by COVID. Susan, thanks for your work, and thanks for taking the time to to share this. Um, you know your insights into what you've been doing, and and I know it's it's hard daily work, and I hope you'll keep doing it. Thanks for talking.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity, Scott. I really appreciate it.
0: Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID calls.